Katie, how goes it? Pretty good, Jesse, but I got sort of a heated email from one of our listeners the other day that I wanted to talk to you about. Uh-oh. How heated? He said he stopped listening. Whoa. Yeah. So this was a guy who, all I know about him is that he's over 60. He mentioned that. And uh, he's Canadian, so two strikes against him. Yeah, that's um, a bad start. Bad start. Um, but he said that he stopped listening to the show because we talk about ourselves too much. So I want to propose something to you. Wait, you want to propose to me? <laughs> That's too personal, Jesse. I don't, this is awkward on multiple levels. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So we're uh, so instead of talking about ourselves, I think from now on at the top of the show we should just talk about my dog. Yeah, dude. We don't have enough moose contact on the show anyway. Yeah, there's so much to say about moose. He wags his tail. He jumps up and down. He has pink eye right now. He gave his best friend Bruce pink eye, and then moose got treated, and then Bruce gave pink eye back to moose. So they're just been like passing it back and forth. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's so much. There's so much here to unpack. Bruce. Okay, there's moose and Bruce. Yeah, Bruce is Bruce is the dog is the yellow lab who my 86 year old Trump supporting NRA supporter owns across the street and he shares it with mike the guy across the street it's very complicated there's these two bachelors it's like a polycule a dog polycule it is it's a dog polycule but then you got like my wife and i involved too so it's like five of us and this like weird relationship with lots of dogs anyway maybe this is too personal but just like i, I want to acknowledge that like we are aware that we talk about ourselves too much so from now on it's just going to be the moose hour we're all we're going to do is talk about moose's twitter drama and the accusations of transphobia against moose not our own stuff Moose's stuff. Just Moose. I have to say, Moose, he's a turf. I've tried to talk him out of it. I have tried. I tell him every morning. I'm like, Moose, do you, like, do you want kibble or do you want wet food? And also trans women are women. Moose is like, woof, only two genders. Woof. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Jesse, moving on. Uh, this episode is going to be a little bit different. I had a pre-existing obligation, aka a dentist appointment, when uh, we were scheduled to record. And so this is going to be all you and... Surprise guest. Well, not a surprise anymore. Freddie DeBoer. Yeah, which I'm a little bit nervous about because I literally had a family member tell me yesterday that you have a much better voice than I do. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Freddie DeBoer, our guest today, is someone who you may not be familiar with unless you spend a lot of time online. Um, and in which case, I am jealous of you. But he is... He's an uh, he's an educator. He's also a uh, educational theorist, perhaps is the word. And but I know him mostly as an essayist. He's a really really exceptional political essayist. He's been around for a long time, and he has this sort of incredible and in some ways kind of tragic personal story that we're not going to get into on the main episode here that you're listening to now, but will be available for patrons in a subsequent uh, bonus episode. Um, so Jesse. You know more about Freddie's work than I do. Why don't you introduce him a little bit more? Yeah, he's just he's always been one of my favorite voices on the left. He his best essays, which I talk about in the the extra episode with him, I just pass them to people over and over and over. Like I, I've sent them to so many people in so many different circumstances. He's a guy who just really understands the sociology of online life and the He's a committed socialist, but but he's not sort of a Kool-Aid drinker. He understands how movements can consume themselves and sort of descend into recriminations and, and purity spirals. So, you know, he's the kind of guy I could talk to forever. And he also has a new book out on the education system. Uh, I say new book. It's his first book. So the conversation we're releasing to everyone is about his book. And then the extra stuff, which is great, is about sort of broader issues. 
So yeah, this is a good opportunity for us to tout our premium subscription program. When we say Patreon, we realize not everyone knows what that means. It's basically... probably should have not taken uh, several months to realize that Patreon might be not be the most obvious like brand name for everybody. But it's basically a fan club. Yeah, you pay $5 a month and you get at least three extra episodes from us every month. So far, it's always been more because what can we say? We're complete workaholics. Uh, you also get to be part of this community of 2,600 people and growing. Comment on episodes. There's extra events. There's just like, we think we provide people with a lot of perks. So... If you're at all interested in this, check us out, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Blockchain Reported. We won't bug you about it further. We know not everyone can afford it right now. Uh, we appreciate you as a free listener. And just tell a friend if you like the show, but don't feel like you can subscribe. All right. So uh, let's go ahead and get started with the episode. And then we're going to come back at the end and discuss it a little bit more. Enjoy. Freddie DeBoer, thank you so much for coming on. Why don't you um, tell listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, hi, I am a writer and an academic. Uh, I'm currently between full-time jobs, but I also am a book author. And I, uh, my first book, uh, The Cult of Smart, is coming out on August 4th. Yeah, and the full title is The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice. Uh, just right up front, this is a great book. I hope everyone listening buys it. It... it taught me a lot about a subject I'd always wanted to know more about. And it did so in this very Freddie DeBoer style of writing, which is sort of clear and morally forceful, but never with any sort of jargon or anything. I just, I just think you're a wonderful writer. So I was, this was the first time I'd ever read anything of yours at nearly this length. And I just, I just loved it. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I don't, I, it was one of the things I didn't know how to do when I sat down to write the book was to write in like a book mode and um, some of the initial uh, responses, like on Goodreads, have talked about it being conversational. I don't really – that doesn't really register to me when I'm writing. I just – I have one way to write and I write it that way. Yeah. Let's – Um. there's one elephant you probably always have to address in the room whenever you talk about this book. Because I remember as soon as sort of the, the subject of this book, which is partly – innate ability and partly genetics came up, a bunch of people online immediately started saying phrenology, race science, all that stuff. And, and you actually had to do a blog post basically right away dispelling those myths about the book, correct? Yeah, that's right. So one of the things that the book does is it speaks frankly about the fact that different individual students have different uh, individual potentials, that uh, we are not blank slates when we arrive in the classroom, but that different um, people uh, have different intrinsic levels of ability um, and that this is a big part of why certain students succeed and why certain students fail. Uh, and uh, the evidence for this is multiple. Uh, you know, one thing I always say is simply common sense. If you went to school, uh, you know, if you did K through 12, then you were exposed to students of different level of abilities and you likely perceived them to be that way. I mean, you knew that there were smart kids in your class and you probably knew that those smart kids were not just harder workers than the other kids in that class, but rather that they were the beneficiaries of a set of gifts that make a big difference in academic outcomes. But another part of the evidence um, is a frankly enormous body of uh, high-quality peer-reviewed research into uh, the heritability of academic uh, outcomes. So when we talk about heritability, what we mean is we are talking about genetics. And what we mean specifically is when we look at a population, uh, we see there are certain traits that people have and we see that there's variation within those traits, right? So, for example, not everybody is equally tall. 
Uh, and uh, it turns out that uh, height is highly heritable, which means that uh, when we look at that uh, variation, we can ascribe a certain portion of the variation. We can we can explain where that variation comes from by looking at genetic differences. Uh, and it's the same way with uh, academic outcomes. And I'll stress, I'm talking about literally hundreds of studies from researchers at some of the most prestigious institutions in the world that have found over and over and over again that uh, academic ability is uh, heritable. So they might look at something like an IQ uh, uh, test, or they might look at something like number of school years completed, which it turns out the number of years of schooling is a really good proxy for broader academic outcomes. It's a really good predictor. So they look at that and they they, uh, compare the degree of genetic relatedness uh, using things called kinship studies, which involve using twins or adopted siblings uh, to figure out uh, how much the portion can be ascribed to uh, genetics, to the biological parentage. And it turns out that in most of the research, we find at least 0.5, so at least 50% of the variance is explainable via genetic differences. And there are uh, there is a not inconsiderable amount that sometimes describes the, per, the portion as high as 0.8, so 80% of the variance um, in, a, uh, in uh, academic outcomes is explainable by genetics. And, and just to put that in perspective, like that is a, by the standards of these sorts of study, even 50%, if you can find one variable that accounts for 50% of the variance in another, that that is is huge. That means that is a very big deal, correct? Yeah. So in this kind of human research, um, yeah, 0.5, 50% of the variance explained is, is enormous. Um, and um, I mean, you're talking about, you know, in, in education, you're talking about a field with very small effect sizes. So in education research, uh, which I have a lot of conflicted feelings about, but in education research, um, there are, uh, you know, many studies published that have statistically significant, but pragmatically very small effects and really wide variances, you know, big standard deviations. Um, and that stands in really stark contrast to um, these, uh, these kinship studies, these heritability studies. And now we have, um, which is offering confirming evidence for the kinship studies, actually looking at the genome. So something called the uh, GWAS, a genome-wide association study, uh, which is attempts to look at the whole genome and to uh, associate what are called SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms and associate those SNPs with, again, with academic outcomes. And so we're starting to see finally actual genetic research that, um, helps to verify what the kinship studies have been saying for decades. So so my my most direct exposure to this is a chapter I wrote about grit for my own book. And there is very much a desire on the part of some education researchers and activists and others for it to be the case that, no, actually, heritable intelligence doesn't matter that much. It's this other stuff. And and one, one example of that other stuff was grit, um, which for a while people were – claiming, you know, grit matters more than you think, intelligence matters less. A, a few days ago, the study came out, which showed that, in fact, in educational settings, the study showed that uh, intelligence, as measured by things like IQ or SAT scores or whatever they use, probably matters 50 to 70 times as much as grit. And the, the disparities aren't always that big, but 
I think the point we're, we're orbiting here is intelligence, like all the research suggests, it matters a great deal toward helping to determine these outcomes, right? Yeah. And uh, we might also point out that uh, there is evidence that grit itself is heritable, right? So yeah. if you're trying to, to posit grit as this uh, alternative explanation, it's not really helping you. And that points to a bigger, a bigger sense. So there's what's called the three laws of behavioral genetics. And the first law is that all uh, human personality tra- traits are heritable. Now, the degree to which they're heritable varies wildly, um, sometimes a very little bit, sometimes a very great deal. But um, we find aspects of human personality, um, like if you use, for example, the five-factor personality test, which I, I acknowledge many of the limitations of it, but I also think that it is interesting, um, those tend to be to be highly heritable. In other words, uh, children tend to resemble their parents in uh, – in their uh, sort of personality and behavioral outcomes. And the closer the kinship genetically between them, the higher the, the uh, coefficient is. So it, identical twins are more like fraternal siblings who are more like half siblings who are more, who are more like than, than cousins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I have, you know, I was working at Brooklyn College in educational measurement, and um, I've always had a uh, academic interest in education research. And one of the things that was amazing to me was in uh, the academic research, in the, the think tank world, especially where there's almost total unanimity on educational issues, and in our popular press uh, discussions of education, the notion of intrinsic talent just almost never came up. Um, but speaking as someone who's taught in various capacities for almost 20 years, um, it was always plainly clear to me at working as a teacher that different students had profoundly different abilities um, in terms of their sort of intrinsic uh, ability to complete academic tasks. And it, it really seems to me to be to amount to a conspiracy not to talk about a very obvious aspect and very consequential aspect of, it, of education. There's also sort of a whack-a-mole aspect of it because, I, you know, I, I vividly remember – being in kindergarten or first grade. And even then, you know, the kids would develop this, these sort of intuitions about who was smart and who wasn't. And surely that doesn't correlate perfectly with, with eventual outcomes, but it's just, as you say, anyone who's worked with kids knows that this is true. What, what do you think accounts for the, this sort of, it, it just seems like a, an attempt to deny a reality that's very much in front of all of us. Well, I, I, one of the things that the claims that I make in the book is that this is um, ideological. And in fact, it exists to sort of shore up the system. So um, we live in a society in which your economic outcomes have a great deal to do with your ability to do well in school. Um, uh, you know, it is quite difficult in uh, our system to uh, earn a living with only a high school diploma. Getting into college and getting a degree um, has a very large uh, and quite consistent um, uh, economic advantage. Uh, And so when people talk about intrinsic ability, they're threatening that system because they're threatening its perceived fairness. If you think that all it takes is good teachers and a grit to succeed. If you, you just have to have stick to and perseverance and all that stuff. And if that's alone is enough to succeed in, in, uh, in school, and you can call this the system just. You can say, well, hey, the people who do well in school are the ones who want it the most. And so we're going to reward them the best in our economic system. But if you say there's, in fact, such a thing as intrinsic ability and it's genetic, 
and none of us choose our genetic parents, then uh, it undermines the fairness of our entire apparatus, our whole meritocracy system. I, I can't remember if you make this point directly, but there's an interesting parallel to me between denying the, the reality of heritability and innate ability on the left and on the right. You know, people pretending there aren't these massive structural disparities and, and low income black kids don't face real structural advantages in terms of the types of schooling they have access to. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that in both cases, you have a desire to sort of prop up the system. Um, it's really important also to add on, on the, the progressive side, you know, the educational discourse on progressives, it's changed a little bit in the last 10 years, but certainly in the 2000s, it's just dominated by a neoliberal pro-charter, pro-reform agenda that was functionally anti-teacher and anti-teacher union. Uh, it, you know, the, the rallying cry has always been no excuses. Um, and, uh, Again, this gets in the way of saying no excuses, right? If, you, if your agenda is to say that students struggle because they have bad teachers, so let's throw the bums out and destroy their unions. If someone says, as a matter of fact, that student was going to struggle no matter who their teacher was because they are unfortunate in having uh, a poor level of natural intrinsic ability, it undermines their ability to make that claim. And so uh, and, and very directly and sometimes explicitly, people in the neoliberal ed reform movement have said, uh, any talk of intrinsic ability is just an attempt to avoid responsibility for on the part of teachers. Right. And, and and to be clear, you you lay this out very precisely in your book. Your view is that the the white black um, academic achievement disparities are a result of structural and environmental factors. And you think if we could snap a finger and get rid of those tomorrow, all that would be left were the would be these genetic differences, and those would or innate differences, maybe to phrase it differently, and those would then appear to be larger in the absence of, of structural and environmental differences. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's right. So I, I think that uh, like any other uh, kind of liberalish kind of figure, anyone else uh, broadly on the left, I think the academic achievement um, gap between um, black and white Amer uh, um, students, um, which uh, does exist in things like grades, graduation rates, GPAs, and SAT scores. Um, but I think that that is uh, the result of you know what we could call white supremacy, um, the structural, the structural elements of society that, uh, contribute to, uh, routine delinquency, inability to do homework at home, a lack of, uh, people who to help them with their homework, uh, just a, a whole set of, of uh, systems that end up hurting students of color. Um, and I think that that is believing that is entirely consistent with believing in individual genetic, uh, differences. Um, I've made this analysis, this analogy before, but you know, if um, you and I go to a basketball game and Bronny James is playing, so that's LeBron James's uh, eldest son. It turns out that he is himself a world class uh, basketball talent. <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Um, if we're watching him play, and I and he's doing well, and I say, say to you, uh, uh, he's really good. He gets that because he's black then that would be an example of a group difference that I'm, that I'm uh, asserting. I'm asserting a group difference between black and white basketball players. And I think you can, I, you can make a strong case that that's racist to say that. But on the other hand, if I say he gets that from his father, right? That has nothing to do with uh, his race. It has everything to do with his genetic parentage. The fact that uh, he is uh, through, you know, Mendelian genetics he is absorbing a lot of his father's DNA, and it happens that his father's DNA 
is almost uniquely suited to being a basketball player, and he has that advantage. Now, I could be wrong, right? In other words, it might be the case that none of Bronny James's uh, basketball ability comes from being the son of LeBron James. But even if I'm wrong, it's not a racist claim. It's because it's a claim about individual differences. And, and that's the distinction that I make in the book. Right. And, and in your book, you're, you're most concerned with people on the other end of the spectrum. I, I can't remember if you use this just in the book or elsewhere, but you describe it as a, quote, prayer for the untalented. Yeah. Um, I mean, you said, as you mentioned, that, um, you know, what happens when uh, the, uh, the racial achievement gap is closed? It happens that I, I th- am maybe naive, but I think that we can close that gap within my lifetime if we ever got really serious about structural changes to the distribution of resources and wealth uh, and, uh, and uh, a sort of social, uh, social advantages of uh, black people. I think that we could close the racial achievement gap. But once we do that, on the one hand, you're going to see a world where there's an equal representation of black and Hispanic and white and Asian um, students uh, within these different a- academic met- metrics. So you're no longer going to see a black-white SAT gap, for example. But there's still going to be this huge gap, which is that between the talented students and the untalented students. And the the gaps between untalented and talented students are far larger than the gaps between racial groups. Um, and the question becomes, uh, how can we believe in the legitimacy and the morality of the institutions if they are assigning uh, uh, success based largely on random chance? If, if in fact, genetic uh, aptitude plays a large role in outcomes, then how can we say that a student who maximizes his potential but ends up failing out of high school, how can we say that we've served that student fairly if he started uh with a significant disadvantage in his outcomes. Right. And, and, and the end point of all this is that, you know, you're, you're a socialist and you think we just need a much stronger, fairer social safety net because it will always be the case that, that many people will not have the innate ability to go become a computer programmer or on the other hand, a basketball player or anything like that. Yeah. And the thing is, is, I mean, the fact that it is our schooling system that is, presumed to be the sorting system of people into different levels of the good life, right? The fact that it is our education system that says you are going to uh, be a a, uh, computer programmer who goes to Stanford and gets a job in Silicon Valley and makes in the hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And you, on the other hand, you are going to fail out of high school and you're going to uh, come up with a bogus disability claim and live a completely... uh, uh, economically bankrupt existence. Uh, the, I, the fact that our schooling system is the one to sort of decide which of those are your outcomes um, was never planned by anybody, right? And one of the things that's interesting, you know, while I was doing some historical research for my dissertation and, um, you know, before maybe the middle of the 20th century, uh, schooling was simply not assumed to have this role of handing out the good life to people, of handing out economic outcomes to people. It happened um, completely spontaneously, and it just happened because of um, certain structural changes in the post-war American economy. Um, but now that it's entrenched and people see it as only being that, as being uh, a system designed to sort of put you at a different level than someone else in the college uh, acceptance game 
and def- define you know how nice of a life you end up leading. Um, one of the things that I point out in the book is people simultaneously want our system to be an engine of equality. And, you know, uh, every president, well, not including Trump, but every president since Reagan has talked about um, education as being the great equalizer. But uh, we we expect it to be an engine of, of equality, but we also expect it to say, and this kid is better than that kid, right? Because that's what the, that's what the system does. It's, a, it's whole purpose in the later years of your academic career are, is to say, this student is a star, this student is a B-plus student, this of a student's a C student, and it can't be both those things. It, 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 the system cannot function simultaneously as a, uh, uh, a equalizer and also a system for sorting people into different levels of excellence. Right. So you're saying those two goals are just intrinsically they clash with one another. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a lot of that in uh, in education. I mean, I one other thing I point out. So if you look at the think tank world, uh, which again is, um, it is remarkable the overwhelming unanimity of the charter school, pro charter school, pro reform, neoliberal model in our think tank world. Um, but if you talk to people like that, they talk a lot about uh, dynamism and innovation in education and how that's what's going to save us. And we need dynamism and innovation. But these are the same people who push the common core, which is a set of standardized. Uh, uh, curricula that all students have to take. It should go without saying uh, dynamism and innovation are the complete opposite of a set of standards, right? A a set of standard uh, curricula is the exact opposite of what you want if you want dynamism and innovation. And I think part of the reason that these contradictions persist in education is there's just so little diversity in the educational discourse, there's so little. Uh, I mean, one of the things that, that, I, that I think people need to do is inject some radical pessimism into their understanding of how schooling functions and what schools and teachers can accomplish. But pessimism is seen as leaving kids behind. You're seen as being an enemy of struggling students if you express any pessimism. So it just doesn't exist. I mean, if you read a you know uh, a publication like The Atlantic. Uh, I, I defy you to go through their various, um, you know, put together by a bunch of different writers. And yet there is such unanimity in the basic assumptions about what education is and for and what it can do. And we desperately need to shake up the educational edifice so that people can see what's so weird about all of it. That's so interesting because one of the things I found in my book is basically looking at all these um what I call half-baked psychological interventions. And over and over and over, some new TED Talk idea leaps onto the scene claiming to be able to solve some difficult societal problem, and they inevitably fail because these problems are are deeper rooted than that and they cannot be psychologized away. And I think above and beyond what you're saying about how if you're you're a pessimist, you're seen as being against students somehow or, or not empathetic enough, Pessimists don't get TED Talks. They don't get research grants. There's just there aren't there a lot of baked in incentives to overclaim here. You know, I was um, I'll, well, I'll give you one good example of the sort of baked in incentives. I was um, working on my PhD at Purdue, and uh, like a lot of grad students, I needed some extra money, so I became um, a research assistant to a professor, working on a online social network to improve student writing, which is as dumb of an idea as it sounds. Um, 
uh, which thankfully didn't go anywhere. But uh, at the time I had been doing, you know, political writing as I always do. And I had um, taken a couple swings at the Bill Gates Foundation. And then after a few weeks on the pro uh, on the, the, the project, uh, my, my, uh, uh, the professor who I was research assisting for said, men, casually mentioned that it was Gates Foundation money we were working with. Uh, <laughs> just the Gates Foundation. I mean, talk about bad incentives. If you just focus on the, the Gates Foundation, that in and of itself is an enormous disincentive for uh, researchers to buck the trend and to go against uh, what um, – the sort of the, the, the group think is within the think tank world. Uh, they are so big and they contribute such a huge portion of independent grant money uh, in the United States education system that a lot of people feel they can't be seen to publicly disagree with Gates Foundation uh, uh, rhetoric because uh, they would jeopardize the opportunity to get another grant. Everybody in education is a little bit scared of the Gates Foundation because they have such a huge amount of money. And, you know, they more or less by themselves got the common core passed in this country. It was really remarkable and quite disturbing how they were able to evade public accountability and get the common core passed in, I think, 41 states um, without uh, uh, real public review. And so that's a good example of you know, there are these 800 pound gorillas in the world of education uh, research and education policy, and people are afraid. They're afraid to buck the system. One thing I liked about your book is it, it got me to just sort of think more carefully about um, certain practices that I hadn't given much thought to. What One that really jumped out at me is this practice of, you know, you have a kid who has fulfilled all the requirements to get a uh, high school degree, say, but then he got a 58 instead of a 60 on some standardized algebra exam. And he just can't get a, a high school degree. And yet your argument is basically there's just there's that's stupid. There's no reason to do that, right? Yeah, I mean, what I'm in part, I'm riffing on a book called The Math Myth by Andrew Hacker, who's an economist, and uh, he in in that book um, he makes a really stark case that algebra requirements, specifically uh, math requirements in general, but algebra requirements specifically just leave human waste in, in, in their, in their, uh, undertow. Uh, they, uh, are, uh, inflexible and incredibly difficult for people to, uh, to pass. And, uh, they are a huge predictor. So, you know, failing a class is a big predictor of whether you drop out. Uh, and that's true both on the, on the high school and the college level and tons of students, we can very safely say, have dropped out of high school or, or college because they couldn't take, get there through their math requirement. And of course, math is absolutely uh, uh, central to human flourishing, but that doesn't mean that everybody has to be able to take algebra and pass algebra too. Uh, and again, my, my argument is that this should really sort of lead to a uh, loosening of standards, but in fact, it's doing the opposite, which is again, in things like the common core where, um, Standards only become more and more rigid and rigid and inflexible. What's so weird is like if if you made a list of things the average adult just needs to be an informed, productive citizen, I, the list of things I would put above algebra, including basic statistics, just um, sort of critical thinking, logic. It's weird how algebra came to be seen as that necessary. And the thing is, is in, even in places where this isn't a big problem. 
you t- look at like New York State, where uh, it's somewhere in the seventy percent seventy percent of the students uh, uh, pass the Regents exam in in math, but uh, that's because the uh, uh, requirement is that you only have to answer like thirty three percent of the questions correctly. <laughs> So right. the, some, of the, some of the states that have gotten around this problem have done it simply by making the standard laughably low. Um, and that's the sort of thing like you would think there would be a middle ground where we can talk openly and maturely about, okay, what does the standard actually mean? Is it a, actually a fair standard? Should we have other options like a statistics class that a student can take? Um, but we can't do that. And so you keep the standard and make it easy to pass or or you keep the standard and don't make it any easier to pass. And a ton of your your, your kids fail out. Um, it's a mess. Yeah. Well, I mean, this ties, I guess you basically just answered this, but uh, Herzog, who is currently at the dentist, wanted to know, would be curious to hear him talk about if he thinks schools should have lower standards to address performance gaps. So I guess she means in a graduation context. And it sounds like overall you do. Yeah, I mean, uh, lower or looser. I, I would probably prefer to use the word looser, but uh, yeah, uh, one way or the other. I um, I think that uh, w- human beings are not standardized. Um, every individual student has um, a whole set of influences, including genetics, but also things about their family and their background and their environment uh, that play a role in shaping them. And uh, it is bizarre to have... Uh, a set of uh, stringent requirements that everyone has to pass in order for uh, them to pass through school. And the thing is, I think one thing to make clear about this is, um, you know, oftentimes what ends up happening with these kinds of stringent uh, requirements and public pressure to improve them is you get some kind of fraud or another. So um, there's been a, uh, a considerable increase uh, in the last 10 or 15 years and the number of kids who are graduating from high school, the, the dropout rate is at an all-time low. And that sounds great, except that if you look at the underlying numbers, if you take a look at the standardized testing, if you take a look at the SATs, if you take a look at a number of underlying indicators, there's nothing that would support that uh, students are actually performing better. Rather, what happened is, is what's called Campbell's Law, which is uh, Campbell said, the more that you pressure that you put on a given quantitative indicator, the more that uh, you uh, make it say, hey, you have to get this graduation rate or it's your job, the more that that happens, the more inevitable it's going to be that you're going to have fraud, that the indicator is going to become a bad indicator. And so this has happened across the country where there isn't any underlying reason to think that high school students are doing better than they used to, but they're graduating at higher rates because for decades, state governments have said, get those graduation rates, get those graduation rates up. Well, they've done that, but they've done it by ignoring standards. You, um, So you argue in the book that, that you think society has a moral duty to provide universal pre-K and after-school programs, but you also don't think there's much evidence that these sort of lift grades or other measurable metrics, uh, that, that sort of puts you in a it's like a tough political needle to thread, but, but you think that's the position that should be taken here, right? I mean, I, one of the things that we're seeing with COVID and one of the things that makes this p- p- period unfortunate, you know, kids are safer and healthier in school than they are anywhere else in their lives. Um, that is what the, the research shows. I know that there's lots of fear about school shootings or whatever, but uh, school is uh, at scale, just a remarkably safe place for students to be. Um, one of the reasons for that uh, is that uh, 
if a child is likely to be the victim of a crime, the parent is uh, the overwhelmingly most likely person to commit that crime, which is a whole other ball of wax. But school is a safe place to be. But unfortunately, most places school goes for six hours and uh, people work for eight hours. And even if they uh, work for eight hours, they might have a commute that adds another hour on either side of that. So I want pre-K and after school care because I want students to have children to have a safe, warm place to, to go with food, with uh, the opportunity for some stimulation. Um, I can't argue in good faith that we should do it because of academic outcomes, because the uh, research is very discouraging. Uh, you know, pre-K is, it's almost incredible the distance between how people talk about pre-K and the actual research record. Uh, the studies that find no effect or effects that fade out very quickly over a few course of a few years, which is very common, by the way, in, in younger childhood metrics, that things that appear to work early on in life fade out by the time they reach their grade. Um, the, the studies that find um, uh, no effect, uh, that these programs are not effective, are pretty much all of the higher quality, larger end studies, whereas the studies that people talk about all the time when they try to justify pre-K are the smaller, lower quality studies. Um, I think that if we're going to sp- speak out in favor of universal pre-K, we should be doing it in moral language rather than academic language because we simply don't have an evidentiary basis to argue it on the academic side. Um, I had one last question about the book, but was there anything else you wanted to tell people about it or anything I should have asked you on the book front before I ask you that one? You know, the, the, there's a story I tell in the book, and I've been telling it a lot, because um, I think that it's indicative of what I mean when I talk about the cult of smart. Because, I mean, my basic argument is that, you know, the American economy changed and school became the, the individual uh, vehicle through which we are assigning life outcomes to people. And, uh, and I, as that has happened, um, the notion of uh, being a successful human being has become all bound up in school. So to this point that people don't even recognize the degree to which we're acting as if schooling is the most important part in somebody's life. And that's the cult of smart. And so I tell the story, I was at uh, a, uh, cookout uh, when I was getting my PhD at Purdue and uh, you know, just, just chatting with some other PhD students that I knew. Uh, there was a family there that I hadn't met before um, from China, uh, a PhD student and his wife and a couple kids. And uh, they, uh, the, the mom was bragging about the older son and saying that he was uh, top in his class and that he was in a robotics club and that, you know, he was just a little genius, whatever, which is typical mom stuff. I didn't think much about it. Then her younger son ran by and he was making like goofy noises with his mouth. And she said, uh, he is maybe not so smart. And not only did I immediately like kind of clench up, I could see the other people we were talking to kind of like were disturbed. It was like an awkward moment. Um, and I, you know, I, I, at first I sort of thought, well, maybe it's just, just like something lost in translation. She's not a you know native English speaker or whatever. But as I thought about it later on that day, it's like, you know, uh, if she had said he doesn't have an ear for music, I wouldn't have cared. If she had said he'll never be an artist, I wouldn't have cared. 
If she had said, he's not a great athlete, I wouldn't have cared, right? Um, there's all these indicators of whether somebody's good at something or not that it simply wouldn't have occurred to me for it to be to be weird or uh, or awkward. Only with smart, right? Smart alone is presumed to be a indicator of the totality of somebody's worth. So if, if you say this kid's never going to play the violin, nobody cares. If you say this kid isn't that bright, you're passing an existential judgment on him and saying he'll never have a good life. And that's what I'm identifying in this, that people don't think about the degree to which we have absorbed the lesson that only school matters. I think that school is important, but there's lots of other important aspects and elements about of being a, a good human being. And I, uh, I want to start a conversation about maybe going back to a world where we think there's lots of different ways to be a useful and productive human being, and not all of them have something to do with school. Right. And of course, that would be it would be easier to get to that world if we had a better economic system that didn't so clearly reward the, the credentialism of, of higher education. Yeah. I mean, look, like uh, I've said this all the time. College is uh, presumed to be a, uh, a tool of equality. It is by its very nature a tool of inequality. Right. When you get a college degree, you are uh, making yourself unequal. You are making yourself appear more uh, uh, desirable in the labor market than someone who doesn't have it. Right now, uh, only about a third of American adults has a, a college degree. So it's rare enough that it remains economically attractive. But if we were to succeed in the unspoken policy goal of so many people, which is to get everyone a college education, I mean, that's that is the neoliberal solution to our problems is to get everyone a college education. If everyone had a college education, the market advantage of having a college uh, education would evaporate, right? Because you would be competing with everyone else who already has that education. And so it is nonsensical to think that we can make our society more equal by, by educating our way there. The more equal that it becomes, the more and more and more that everybody looks the same in terms of having a college education, the more the the market value of that education will decline. Well, and we already see that in, in uh, advanced degrees. Like there's a you know a massive oversupply of newly minted lawyers, or even in you know with the collapse of higher ed, a massive oversupply of like uh, anthropology PhDs, and and it just doesn't lead to good outcomes. Right. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, you know, um, and I think part of uh, why um, there's so much angst about the uh, about those fields, I mean, people are, are suffering terribly, and so they, they should have angst. But also, I think for a lot of people, it's you know, to, in their mind, they worked, they did the program, right? They they did what they were told to do. They went to school and they and they worked hard. They got a degree, and they thought, you know, this is going to be uh, uh, something that takes me over the top into financial security. And when it doesn't happen, they're understandably uh, enraged. Let's end the book segment of of the program. Uh, I'm going to ask you to defend what I saw as the most radical claim in the book, which is that 12-year-olds should be able to drop out of school. Yeah, so uh, this has indeed been the most controversial <laughs> element. Yeah. So people say, well, what are you going to – what are the kids going to do when they're not at school? So the first thing to say is that – 12-year-olds are still minors and are still operating underneath the permission of their parents. So parents have to sign off on this. And I have a funny feeling many parents would not. But when people say, what are 12-year-olds going to do? 
they would do what everyone, what human beings, all the things that human beings already do. You know, they'll go for a walk in the woods. They'll read books. They'll uh, paint paintings. They'll go for walks on the beach. They'll uh, uh, learn how to ride a bike. They'll do all the sort of things that human beings do uh, in their form of flourishing. If, you know, I was someone who, as a teacher, particularly as a college teacher, was sort of perpetually frustrated by having to teach students who didn't want to be there. It's particularly annoying because college is voluntary. You don't have to go. But these students felt such immense economic pressure to be able to go, to have to go, that they uh, that they would show up, but they wouldn't want to be there. They wouldn't do very well, and they'd give the, me as a teacher a hard time. And it made me believe that uh, we have a major problem with forcing people through educational steps that they don't want to go through. Uh, I concede that in the short run, uh, absent some of the reforms that I talk about, it would be hard on someone who drops out of college as a 12-year-old. Tw- but uh, I want uh, us to think radically about uh, what exactly are the paths to being a fulfilled human being. And it seems to me that uh, there are things other than attending, you know, not paying attention, staring out the window, getting detention in algebra class as an eighth grader that that, that there are other things that someone could do that could help them flourish uh, if that's not working out for them. The book is The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice. I read it maybe two or three months ago. It's a great book. I hope everyone orders it. Uh, so Freddie is going to stick around. We're going to talk about the broader political scene. We're going to talk about social media, mental health. Uh, this is it for the free episode. So check out the patrons only feed. Uh, if you want to hear the rest of the conversation, it's me and Katie again. Katie, that was a pretty raw deal for you in that you were sitting in a dentist chair and I was talking to Freddie DeBoer. Yeah, but now I have a, a sparkling clean smile. And can you really say that as well? No, my smile is disgusting. Uh, <laughs> no, so so yeah, I thought that was a great discussion. I um, I would really recommend, you know, if you can check out the patron version where we go into way more depth on a ton of other stuff. Did anything jump out to you in particular? Um, the fact that he thinks that 12 year olds should be able to drop out of school is pretty <laughs> yeah. interesting. And so I have I interviewed Freddie a few months ago um, at The Stranger. I was working on a piece about what's happening in the education system in Seattle. And of course, the education system everywhere has basically collapsed. So like problems have changed. But in Seattle, what was happening at the time was that in the sort of what would be traditionally be called the gifted programs, there's a big difference in the number of white and Asian students and the number of black, Latino and Native American students. And if you're a progressive city and you have a progressive school board, this looks really bad, right? Um, and so I, I was working on a piece about Seattle's solution to this problem, which is basically to dismantle their gifted program. And so I interviewed um, Freddie for this. And over the course of, uh, of reporting this story, I had also spoken to lots and lots of parents, some parents who had kids in the gifted program and who were just horrified that this was going to be going to be shut down. Some parents whose kids weren't in the gifted program who were horrified that it that it existed in the first place because it seemed so so racist. And after speaking with Freddie, he told me basically the same thing, the same message that he has in the book, which is that 
it doesn't really matter that these interventions, gifted program, the students who are in the gifted programs will do fine if there's a gifted program or there's not a gifted program. The students who are the bottom performers are probably not going to do well. And there's very few interventions that will change that. There's uh, some evidence that small group tutoring can have an impact, but even that is, is really pretty minor. Um, so it's not a, it's not an optimistic outlook, but it is sort of revolutionary, this idea that you know, education doesn't fix problems and it actually creates more problems. And so if you want to actually fix the fix, not just equity issues, but fix sort of poverty issues, you really have to address these elsewhere. You have to address these with family, with social structures, with the social safety net. Um, and these things probably, no matter how well-meaning progressives are or anybody in the school system, no, you know, good teachers are not going to make a, a, a bad student into a good student. And that's just a reality that we need to grapple with if we actually want life to get better. I I think if we really want to level playing field, we just need to ban education. I am so in favor of that. Although uh, basically education, is we don't really have it anymore. I mean, schools are closed. Now it's everybody's like homeschooling or sitting their kid in front of a in front of a Zoom class. And it's utopian. It's perfect. There's no problems. The, the, The one thing I in the moment I wish I'd push back a little more is that I thought he was saying that even suggesting there's like some physical differences at the level of averages between races uh, is inherently racist. I, I just think like if you see the way, I don't know, different groups dominate different sports, not just basketball, but all over the place. I've had this fight with progressives before. That that to me seems like a different sort of argument than going the weird like race science IQ route. But um, this was not an important hill to die on. But I, it'd be interesting maybe to hash that out with him at some point. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. And I also can see why he would be so careful to make sure that to like make very clear that this is not a book about group differences. Just because I mean, as we both know, even before the book was published, when there was just sort of rumors speculating, a rumor circulating about this about this book, already people were sort of um, you know assigning him racist motives to writing the book. Um, but he makes like pretty compelling arguments that uh, we should be looking at individual differences and not group differences, which is I'm like happy to I'm happy to like never talk about about you know group differences when it comes to race and, and cognition ever. I also like I'm not going to pretend to have looked too deeply in this, but I also think there are easy ways to explain why there could be physical but not cognitive stuff. But I thought it was weird that every copy of the book, uh, you also get a Slavic skull where it like marks like different ridges and stuff. I thought that that detracted from his message that it wasn't race science. Yeah. You know, the, the copy that I got, um, it just came with calibers. I guess we got <laughs> different editions. Uh, okay, Katie, I think that about wraps it up. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, you can always uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can send us an email at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com. Definitely check out the Patreon, patreon.com slash blockedandreported. I'm Jesse Single. And remember, as a race, British people have too mild a temperament to succeed in the competitive American public school system. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if any 12-year-olds listening to this decide to drop out of school, I have some yard work that needs to get done. Mm-hmm.